Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. Oftentimes, people are dissatisfied or complain about the circumstances in which they are in. They claim that these situations can become an interference or prevent them from growing in faith. They think if they were in a better situation or circumstances, they would have a better relationship with God. However, if you look at the footsteps of many of the people in the Bible, you don't see many that succeeded in their journey of faith because their circumstances were great. In contrast, because they had hardship, it helped them to grow stronger in their faith. George Whitfield as well did not grow up in the greatest of circumstances. During the early 18th century, England was growing through times of great confusion, ethically and politically. Safe places were difficult to find because of protests, riots, smuggling, and violence all throughout the country. Prisons were filled with prisoners. It was very common for criminals to be publicly executed during this time. People were becoming more addicted to alcohol and drugs, and the church as well was being shaken by the ways of the world and becoming more and more corrupt. George Whitfield was born in 1714 in Gloucester, England. At the age of two, his father passed away and Whitfield grew up receiving his mother's undivided attention, care, and love. When Whitfield turned eight years old, his mother married again. During his teenage years, his stepfather became addicted to gambling, which eventually resulted in a broken family. Because of this, Whitfield dropped out of high school, began working at a restaurant, and was drawn to a rebellious and corrupt lifestyle. We'll come back to share more after our first song. love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son and make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished 
Due to the rapid change in George Whitfield's life, he began to live a rebellious life. Finally, he realized how corrupt he had become and began to seek God. He returned to school and later attended Oxford University. Because he did not have the money to pay tuition, he entered as a servitor, the lowest rank of students at Oxford, and in return received free tuition. He was assigned as a minister to a number of higher-ranked and wealthy students. His duties were to teach them, help bathe them, take out their trash, carry books, and even assist with assignments. Although he was attending school in these circumstances, he was still thankful to God for being able to study, and his relationship with Him grew deeper. While serving the wealthier students, Whitfield fell in with a group of students who called themselves the Holy Club. The club was led by the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. Under their influence, he learned to live a very strict Christian lifestyle and experience a new birth. Every day when he woke up, he prayed and wrote a repentance letter. On Sundays, he attended communion services, and on Wednesdays and Fridays, he fasted. However, by doing all of this, he realized that instead of experiencing a deeper level of God's grace, he was doing all of this for his own well-being and glory. Realizing that he did not know what true Christianity was, he fell into great despair. He came to the realization that by drowning in despair, he could not be born again and establish a proper relationship with God. So he began to study the Word of God. He put aside all of the books he had been reading and started reading the Bible. He meditated on the passages and began to pray. His desire for God was so strong, he paused everything he was doing and began to cry in prayer. He read a verse and prayed upon it and repeated the cycle. While doing this, he deeply realized the sins he had been committing and began to repent and confess before the Lord how helpless he was. Then one day, He heard a quiet voice speaking from within his heart, saying, George, now stop the fight and believe that you have been saved. You have been reborn again. Hearing this, he was not only happy and thankful, but he began to have a passion to spread the gospel he came to know and love. Over the span of several months, he focused on his schoolwork, and at the age of 21, in 1736, He graduated from Oxford University and was ordained as a pastor. George Whitfield's first sermon was at a church in his hometown, Gloucester. Many lives were changed among the people who listened to his sermons, and during each sermon, the numbers of listeners increased drastically. Just within a few months, thousands of people were gathered to listen to Whitfield preach the gospel. His ministry began in the morning and went until nightfall. Many pastors in the area began to criticize his ministry and prevented him from preaching at their churches. However, this did not stop Whitfield as he started preaching outside. He started to preach the coal miners of Kingswood, which opened up a greater opportunity for him to spread the gospel to more people. Within just two months, more than 20,000 people gathered to hear his sermons. There was a spiritual revival People who were lost in the darkness of the world came to the light and came to know Christ. Wherever the name of Jesus was proclaimed, countless people repented and proclaimed to change and live their lives for Christ. Whitfield ignited spiritual revival everywhere he preached. The Great Awakening became one of the most formative events in American history. 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus is Better, Part 1, based on Hebrews Chapter 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Before we step into the book of Hebrews, maybe just a word about authorship. This is the book that nobody knows really who wrote it, except we know that God did through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're not sure about the author of Hebrews. Many times you'll hear people say, well, Paul wrote it. Well, we're not sure. Doesn't sign off with Paul's name. Some believe that Apollos, who was very eloquent and very knowledgeable and, and had come from Alexandria, learned man, powerful in the scriptures, perhaps he wrote it. Others think, interestingly, that maybe Barnabas might have written Hebrews because, remember, Barnabas was a Levite and he came from Cyprus and he would have known all about the temple. And in Cyprus, they spoke a Hellenic Ketera Greek, which was the most elegant Greek, not the Koine, the common Greek. The rest of the New Testament is written in. Hebrews is written in an upper-level Greek that if you've ever taken Greek, you'll know that in Greek 101 and 102, you never read Hebrews. You read 1 John, which is real simple Greek. It ends, the book of Hebrews, with the word consolation, which is really Barnabas' name, son of consolation. Who knows? I don't know for sure. I just know the message of Hebrews touches my heart. And I would give you an assignment, those of you who would like to take me up on this, and it's to read the book of Hebrews in one setting. You'll need about an hour and 15 minutes. It's a book about how much better Jesus is than anything the Old Covenant could offer. He's better than the angels, he's better than the priests, he's better than the temple, he's better than the sacrifices, he's better than the Sabbath, he's better than the law, he's better. Better promises, better covenant, better guarantee, better sacrifice. Jesus is better than anything that religion could offer. I often wonder if those who want to take us back under the law have ever read the book of Hebrews. Those who want to go and put you under the Ten Commandment law or tell you you have to keep the Sabbath or give to you uh, some kind of a burden, a yoke that nobody under the law really could ever bear. I wonder if they've read the message, Hebrews 8, which says the last verse that the law has now become obsolete and is done away with. I just wonder, do these guys know what the message is? To those who doubt the deity of Jesus Christ, who say that Jesus is nothing more than an exalted angel, that he's not really God, but he's a creation of God. I wonder, did you ever read Hebrews chapter 1? The whole message of Hebrews chapter 1 is that Jesus is not an angel because to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? To which of the angels did he ever say, did all the angels worship? The whole argument of chapter 1 is that he is no angel. He's God. To those who want you to be observing Saturday as the Sabbath and tell you that you're going to hell and you're following the mark of the beast if you worship God on Sunday, did you ever read Hebrews chapter 4, which says, There remains a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. But it's not the Greek word for the fourth commandment, Sabbath. 
It's a different word. It's a word which means literally just a resting. And it says that God calls that day today. Today, if you won't harden your hearts, but you enter into Jesus Christ's finished work, you've entered into what the Sabbath was pointing forward to. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We've seen that for those who say we need a continual sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9 says, what are you talking about? Jesus was sacrificed once for all time. A sacrifice that never has to be repeated. And that we can know for sure our sins are forgiven. The book of Hebrews has so much truth in it. To those who say we need an Aaronic priesthood, and they claim to have conferred that priesthood upon their young men. And others claim that within their church they have a Melchizedekian priesthood. A priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. I have to say, wait a minute. Haven't you read the book of Hebrews which says, Jesus has taken care of the line of Aaron. Jesus is a king priest. And there is no priesthood anymore to be conferred on anybody. Because he is the great high priest of his people. You see, so many of the cults are answered in the book of Hebrews. And my heart just breaks for people who haven't sat down and they haven't read the message, they don't understand the message of the book of Hebrews, they don't understand the truths, because it seems like Satan doesn't have a very big bag of tricks. He just keeps using them over and over and over again throughout the centuries. And things that were issues in the first century that are addressed here in this letter are the things that the church still faces today. False teachings that the cults bring to us. People coming to our door, knocking on our door, telling us that we have to believe this, telling us that they're God's only true place or church. We have to understand, wait a second, that's not God's message. For those who say it doesn't matter how we live, that we can go ahead and live any way we want. Have you not read Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12 where it says that we are admonished to walk by faith, to not live according to this world, to pattern our lives after the patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament, those who laid down their lives for God, that we are to run with the idea that there is a great cloud of witnesses watching us. And we've got to finish this race. We've got to run this race. And we've got to hear the well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our race. We're to run it with endurance. Laying aside the sins that so easily beset us and fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Who's the author and finisher of our faith. For those who say it doesn't matter how you live, haven't you read Hebrews which says, the Lord says, I'm not afraid that if you're my child, I'm not afraid to discipline you and correct you. For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So do not despise the correction of the Lord. If you can't get away with anything, you ought to be praising God according to the book of Hebrews because it means you're a child of God. Somebody was telling me yesterday about a day or so ago about a situation in their family where someone kept getting caught and caught and caught and caught. <laughs> and I said, praise God. It's evidence they're a child of God. You can get away with it. Maybe you're not a child of God at all. Hebrews 13, such a beautiful book, which admonishes us to follow the Lord 
to pursue godly relationships and encourages us in Jesus' name to follow those and love those who have shared the truth with us, to submit to those who lead us in the Lord so that their hearts aren't grieved as they lead us because it wouldn't be profitable for us for them to lead us and serve us with their hearts grieving. What a book. Our Lord is better. In a day when everybody wants to kind of equalize all religions and say, well, Christianity is Islam, is Buddhism, is Judaism, is Hinduism, is... We have to say, sorry, but I've read the book of Hebrews. And what we have is better. Amen? What we have is better. It's better than any religion that man can offer. Let's begin Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. What an incredible introduction. What incredible two verses. God. It begins with God. God. Spoke in the Old Testament through prophets in many portions, in, in many ways. We have the Old Testament books of the Bible. We look at the Scriptures and we see that God would speak through dreams. God would speak directly to some of the prophets through visions. God would send the angel of the Lord who was the pre-incarnate Christ, not a created being, but the messenger. Angelos means messenger of the Lord. He would appear and speak to them. At other times, the Lord would put a burden on a prophet's heart and they would write. The Lord would predict events before they would occur. Many portions in many ways through the prophets, But God in these last days, verse 2, has spoken to us. And the Greek indicates that He has spoken to us once and for all. Note that. God has spoken. The Greek says, has spoken once and for all time. This is it. No more news. No more stuff to come. No more last day prophets. God has spoken once and for all through His Son. Jesus is God's last word. Amen? Amen. We don't need anybody's last day prophet books. We don't need another testament of Jesus Christ. We don't need a book of anything other than the New Testament. God has spoken. What He said through Jesus is the complete message. It's enough. It's all God wants us to know. Jesus is God's revelation of His heart, of His will, of His purpose, of His salvation, of His plan. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. It could be translated through His Son, by His Son, He's spoken. Jesus is the one whom God appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Jesus is not simply a semi-God. Jesus is fully God, as we will see as we read the next couple of verses, and 
He is heir of all things. Everything that God, the God of the Old Testament has, is Jesus Christ's. In fact, he says, Jesus Christ created the world. When we read, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, John 1.1 says that Jesus was the one who created this. It was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by Him and was not anything created that was made. Jesus is the one who created this world. The book of Colossians chapter 1 tells us that it was His words that were spoken. He spoke the words that created this universe, and it's through Jesus Christ that everything holds together. People are looking at subatomic particles now and they're trying to figure out what is holding the universe together. What is the glue that's sticking the universe together? I'll tell you. The book of Colossians says it's Jesus Christ. He's who holds the universe together. Our Lord, our Savior. And this is the message of Hebrews chapter 1. Through Him, God made the world. Verse 3. And He is the radiance of His glory. That is, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of His nature. And upholds all things by the word of His power. He's saying Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. We talk about it when, when God was, His glory would be over the tabernacle in the wilderness. Remember that glory cloud that, followed his, that led Israel throughout the wilderness? Jesus is that glory of God. Whenever you saw the glory of God on earth, that was Jesus, he's saying. When the glory of God filled the temple, Jesus is that, that radiance of God's glory. The, world, the word effulgence, He is, we, we can't see the sun. But we can see the glory of the sun, can't we? And so it is. No one has seen God at any time, but we can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus, we see God's glory. When he made pure, and he's the exact representation. You've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's exactly what Jesus said too, wasn't it? The disciples asked, Lord, show us the Father, it'll be enough for you. And Jesus says, how long have I been with you? And you say, show us the Father. What do you mean? If you've seen me, (laughs) you have seen the Father. In his character, in his dealings with people, in his teachings, in his standard of rightness, in his sacrifice, in his love, you've seen God. Jesus is God. That's our statement of faith. Verse 3b, when he had made purification of sins, when Jesus by himself had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this begins one really long sentence that I think in English class I would have gotten in a lot of trouble. How about you? Remember your English teacher talking to you about run-on sentences? You cannot do it because you are not inspired. All right? And no, it won't, you can't, your English teacher drops you two grade points because of your run-on sins. You say, well, I, God inspired it. They're not going to buy that, okay? <laughs> but, but this is one long thought here, and the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, the Holy Spirit, 
says, this is cool. You just wrap your mind around this. This is big. This is cool. There's one huge thought. His thought is, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he's going to take eight chapters to kind of rabbit trail. But within it, there is this huge pattern unfolding. It isn't really a rabbit trail. After all, it, it really is planned. It is reasoned beautifully. It's, it's stupendous, truly. When he sat down, when he had made purification of sins, you have to understand that that's Day of Atonement talk, Yom Kippur talk. There was one day in the Jewish calendar that was the holiest day of all the year. It was a day when all Israel fasted. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go in with blood. He would go in with much incense. The scapegoat had been sacrificed. And it would be at that time that he would make atonement for all the sins of Israel that had been merely covered for that year by the daily sacrifices. And if the sacrifice that he offered was accepted, then all the sins of Israel were forgiven for that year. Of course, if he wasn't accepted... Israel would be rejected. I was looking forward to the day when the Lamb of God would come and He would take away the sins of the world. I was looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ would come and He would forever cancel all our sins. He would wipe them away. They wouldn't just be covered. They'd be canceled. They'd be evaporated like the sun evaporates the fog. And so that day came when Jesus died on the cross and when He rose from the dead. And so... When he says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. You have to understand, too, that no Old Testament priest could ever sit down, ever, during his ministry. There's no place to sit in the tabernacle or the temple. Even the vessels that were fashioned for the service of the temple were made in such a way that the bottoms were cone-shaped so that you could not set them down. Anything that held blood could not be set down. You had to hold it. You had to pour it out. You had to carry it. You had to apply it. But you could never set it down because the work was never done. But Jesus came. And Jesus finished the work. On the cross, He cried out, It is finished. And he sat down. Well, I have to think, well, where could a priest sit if he could sit? Oh, we know. There's only one place in the temple that anything is called a seat. In the Holy of Holies, there was an article of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. There was Aaron's rod that had budded and there was a golden pot of manna. And over that, the covering of that was a slab of gold. And upon that slab that was the top of that box over which two cherubim looked down with their wings covering it was the place where on the Day of Atonement the high priest would sprinkle the blood and make purification for the sins of Israel. That place was called the Mercy Seat. Ooh. 
thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm in love by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Oh, and I've seen many searching for It's who I am, it's who I am, you're a good
Soul Gospel Ministry is looking for volunteers in tech editing to ensure the quality of the broadcast and the addition of more encouraging and empowering programs. Volunteer hours are three hours a week, and anyone who's had experience with computer before can participate. And don't worry if you're not familiar with the sound editing program. Heart and Soul will provide basic training and editing. So if anyone is interested in helping out our ministry, please contact us at 602-866-8999. Thank you. Following is a program titled, The Lord is My Shepherd, where we learn about our Lord who is our shepherd through Psalm chapter 23. Hello everyone, this is Jim Hughes with The Lord is My Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. We've just looked at Psalm 23 verses 1 and 2. Are you living according to Christ, who is the living water, to God, our good shepherd? I pray we can all live under His protection. Today, we look to the next verse, which reads, He restores my soul. Why would David have made such a confession? Why is he saying that God, the Good Shepherd, revives his soul? The word revive means the dead brought back to life. To help us understand David's very personal confession, we look again to the relationship of the shepherd to the sheep. Sheep are very fragile. They fall over easily. As a matter of fact, since their legs are short and weak, if they get fat or if their wool gets too heavy, if the ground gets just a bit steep, then the sheep will trip and fall. Instead of expressing it as falling, it would be better to say that the sheep is turned on its stomach, his legs out from under him. Surprisingly, if a sheep is turned on its back or on its front, it's very hard for them to get back up. Typically, when a sheep loses its footing, he cannot get upright again without help. The sheep tries to pick itself up by moving around and floundering, but generally cannot get up by itself and soon gets frustrated. The sheep is among the animals that regurgitate the cud. They have a digestive system that naturally produces a large quantity of gas. This gas is released through continuous burping, often as much as once per minute when digesting. If the sheep is off its feet in an unnatural position, it can lose its ability to burp out the gas. Trapped gas can quickly become a life-threatening condition, affecting both breathing and the circulation of the blood in the limbs. This leaves the sheep helplessly struggling and full of fear. If the sun is hot or the air is too warm and the sheep is turned on its stomach or on its back, sheep could die in a short time. Gladly, if the weather is cooler and there are clouds and maybe drizzling rain, the sheep could survive a bit longer, although in that uncomfortable condition. 
Because these situations can and do happen, the shepherd must check to ensure his sheep have not fallen over and flipped uh, to one side or the other. Even in days with great weather, if the shepherd doesn't realize that a sheep is turned over, that sheep, unassisted, can just die. That is why shepherds always count their sheep. If a sheep is missing, then the shepherd must go immediately and look for his sheep. Most shepherds say that very frequently they will find one or two of their sheep turned over. How might the shepherd feel when he sees one of his sheep turned over? When the worried shepherd finds his sheep turned over and while still at a long distance, he runs to the sheep with joy that he found the sheep and with a concerned heart, for he's not sure if the sheep is still alive or not. First, the shepherd places the sheep into the right position. However, it cannot be done immediately or too fast. It has to be done in a slow and careful manner by rolling the sheep to one side. The pressure of the gas inside the sheep has to be reduced. If the sheep has been lying on the ground for a long time, and with much gas inside, a saving strategy would be to lift and hold the sheep off the ground instead of rolling it into its normal position. In order to recover the blood circulation after the sheep is back up again, massage of the limbs is required. This takes a long time. If the massage isn't thoroughly given, the sheep will easily fall over again and again, which is why the shepherd must take care of his sheep. See then the picture. A sheep turned over at great risk of dying, raised up into a proper position by the shepherd. The shepherd putting forth all his effort to save the sheep from death. This rescuing care is what David pictured when he said of God, He restores my soul. Because God is our good shepherd. He carries us and raises us up when we fall over. He revives our souls. If you look at how a sheep falls, we can all relate to how we also fall over easily. There are a few reasons as to why sheep fall easily. First, the sheep that usually look for hollow and comfortable places tend to fall over more. The sheep that finds the peaceful and comfortable places where the ground is sunken tend to fall over when they, they lean over a little. How might we compare ourselves with these sheep? Don't you think Christians who try to find comfort and ease in their Christianity tend to fall over more easily? We must strive to be Christians who deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. If we choose ourselves over everything, if we just throw away our cross and go to a comfortable place to live a comfortable life, it is, is it in fact not obvious that we will fall over? But from time to time, God, our Good Shepherd, 
leads us away from those comfortable places and takes us to rough and uncomfortable places so that we don't fall over. Secondly, sheep with excessive wool can have lots of trouble. To those sheep with excessive wool, a lot of dirt and waste, branches or leaves may get attached to the wool and even get stuck in it, which is dangerous for the sheep. The weight of the heavy wool can slow the sheep and make it fall over. Don't we fall over when we carry so many things around too? My desires, my plans, my dream, my vision. Because of the things that are not from God, my wool or hair gradually grows and in that wool all the dirty and dangerous things start to stick and they become bothersome. Eventually, because of all this weight, don't you think that you could fall over? We witness many fellow Christians like that all around us. At first they start out well. As time passes, they grow. But these are the people that allow many different distractions to collect in their lives as they grow. And at any moment, they just fall. What does a shepherd do if he doesn't want the sheep to fall? Shepherd has to occasionally shave off the wool of the sheep. Now, the process of shaving the wool off isn't the most fun and delightful thing for the shepherd or for the sheep. The shepherd even feels as if he's doing the work of a slave. However, it's done to save the sheep's life. Third, sheep with a lot of fat fall over easily too. This is obvious. If the sheep is very fat, then it tends to be unhealthy and unproductive. That is why the shepherd sends that type of sheep to an even more rough place. He will make the sheep exercise more. Also, those sheep are fed less than other sheep. And the shepherd constantly observes the sheep to make him stronger instead of letting it stay as a weak animal. We humans are much the same, aren't we? If in all the things that we need we are overfilled beyond our expectation and if it overflows, the result can be we become helpless. When we eat well and live well, we say, why should I look for hard and burdensome work? Such people are prone to fall over eventually. In our lives, God, the Good Shepherd, fills us with the things we need. However, He does not overfill us with things to the point where they become harmful. But we don't realize this, and so we always want more, and we try to get more, and because of this we trip and fall. From time to time, we can even come near to death. However, in those moments, God, the Good Shepherd, revives our souls by coming to us and raising us up, massaging us and holding us in His arms. 
The overturned sheep can be the target for many predators. That's because there is no easier target than a sheep lying on the ground unable to move or defend itself. They don't have enough strength to escape and are dying. The shepherd must be awake to save the sheep before the beasts attack it. The God that protects all of you, the God that revives your souls, even today, he's right next to you and looking after you so that you don't fall over and die. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Reads Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. I'll end, The Lord is my shepherd here today. Join me again next time. Until then, God bless and keep you.
Because George Whitfield experienced rebirth within the Word, through his experience, many others were able to be changed and reborn again as well. Crossing the Atlantic Ocean was a long and hazardous adventure. Whitfield visited America seven times, making thirteen ocean crossings in total. It is estimated that he preached more than eighteen thousand formal sermons, in which seventy-eight were published. In addition to his ministries in North America and England, he made fifteen journeys to Scotland, two to Ireland, and one each to Bermuda, Gibraltar, and the Netherlands. Many Christians of the eighteenth century were changed by the great sermons of George Whitfield, and to this very day, his teachings mentor many preachers. No matter what the situation or difficulty one may face, a person born again in Christ will not be affected. The world cannot handle those who have been born again in Christ. If we are discouraged by our situations or the unfortunate circumstances we may be in, I pray that instead we may go before God to seek comfort. I pray that we all may experience the grace and rebirth that Christ has allowed for us. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Just like these words of Proverbs chapter eight verse seventeen, I pray that all of our listeners may love God, diligently seek Him, and experience His outpouring grace. We will now wrap up unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure delivering this message to you. I hope we meet again this time next week. And God bless. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie fix our eyes upon the cross and run to him who showed great love and blood for us freely you bled for us Christ is risen from the dead trampling over death by death Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with Him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Church.
proclaim Christ is risen from the dead Trampling over us by death Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave Christ is risen from the dead We are one with Him again Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave Oh, death, where is your sting?